listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Ross, I'm one of the uh, pastors at Bethel. Mark and I traded places today, so I'm sorry about that. But we needed the South Campus to know what good preaching was. And uh, you guys get to endure a little bit of what the South Campus has to deal with on a weekly basis. Um, So before I go anywhere, if you've never met my wife, that's the best part of me. I should probably just introduce her and get off. But that's my wife, Leslie, and my youngest daughter, Catherine. And I've got two um, older kids, college kids, uh, and they're doing their thing um, in Lubbock, Texas uh, this morning. And so... Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. We are starting a series today. So Mark will be back next week if you're worried. Oh, no. Mark will be back next week. Bring your moms. It's not too late to go ahead and order flowers, do all those things that you're supposed to do. All right, so we are starting today. Let me tell you, we're, we're doing um, the, a new series today called The Attributes of God. And when we talk about the attributes of God, we're talking about who God is, what, what, what His being is, what, what He's like. And we want to talk about that from the way that God's Word presents who God is, all right? And so, um, I think I messed that up, sorry. All right, so the way that God, God's Word presents who God is, and so you, you hear these things, so you, you find out from God's Word God's holy, and you find out from God's Word that God is faithful, and you find out from God's Word that God is uh, things like, you know, we have all these omnis, right? Omnipresent and omnipotent and... Um, uh, omniscient. and so, so God is all of these things as Scripture describes Him. And so for the next several weeks, we want to pull some of these attributes of God out and talk about them and, and say, okay, this is, this is the little snapshot in Scripture. It doesn't say everything about who God is, but it does say this thing about who God is. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about the sovereignty of God and I want to do that from one of the most familiar passages to, of all the church is Romans 8, 28. That's where I'm going to start, and we're going to go to the end of it. Now, to, to go ahead and tell you about... Um, so, so when we say sovereignty, there, there are people. you have a couple of responses. One of those responses is, oh, that's too big a word. That's over my head. I don't, you know, I, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Or... Your ears perked up, and you want to know this morning just like how Calvinistic I am or how Arminian I am. And so I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to be able to tell, all right? Um, I am going to thread the needle so brilliantly today, um, but where I don't, Mark will pick up the pieces next week, all right? So, but but here's, what, here's what I want you to know. So when you're talking about Romans 8, we, we do this all the time. And this is not, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, all right? It's going to sound like I think it's a bad thing. It is not a bad thing, um, but there are better things. And sometimes we take a portion of Scripture, we take a verse from Scripture, and we lift it out of its context, and we put it on a bumper sticker. Or we lift it out of its context, and we insert it into a um, you, you know, a, a phone call or a, um, yeah, I mean, in fact, we don't even quote Romans 8, 28 anymore. It's so familiar to us. You know, somebody goes, man, I'm really having a hard time. Somebody goes, Romans 8, 28. You know, and you hear that enough if you're going through real suffering, that you begin to find yourself, if you're not careful, feeling bitter 
towards those who seem to be making light of what it is that you're walking through. And I want you to know, I want us to see three things from, from Romans 8, 28 to the end of, of chapter 8. I want us to see the sovereignty of God in the midst of our suffering. I want to see the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And I want us to see the sovereignty of God in sustaining us in this life and for eternity. And so there are a lot of places we could go for the sovereignty of God. There's a lot of places we can go to talk about that. Let me define sovereignty real quick so I make sure we're all on the same page. Sovereignty means this. It's the biblical teaching that God possesses all power and is ruler of all things. So he possesses all power and he rules over all things and God rules and works and executes his divine will according to his eternal purposes. That what God has willed and God has decreed, it will take place because he has both the authority and the power to make it happen. We know people that have authority, but they have no power. We know people who have power, but don't have any authority. God has both infinitely. And so what God wills happens. Um, and it happens even through events that we think, as we experience them, they seem to contradict His rule and His power. Particularly when we face evil or we walk through suffering, we think, oh, God can't be in control here. And I want to tell you, God is absolutely in control. Scripture emphasizes this sovereignty three ways. So um, we're going to consider kind of one of them. But you, one of the categories, if you had three big buckets, there's sovereignty in creation. So the Bible spends a great deal of real estate describing to us that God is the creator of all things and that Christ, in Colossians chapter 1, is just, you know, holds all things together. He creates all things and He sustains all things. And all things that were created were created by Him and for Him. That's one bucket. The other bucket we would call um, uh, God's sovereignty or His rule or His authority and His power over all of history. And that, that means that nothing in history takes place apart from what God has designed. The rise and the fall of nations are a part of God's decree. And, and so we look at it and we go, well, I don't understand that. This doesn't seem right to me. This, this isn't how I would do it if I were God. And, and yet the Bible says that the, the heart of kings is in the hand of God. All right? The third one has to do when Scripture depicts or talks about or envisions or imagines with, with, with language our salvation. And it says that God is sovereign over our salvation. That our salvation, our redemption, our coming to the knowledge of Christ and being saved by the work of Christ is a part of God's eternal purpose that He takes the initiative for and that we trust in them. And, and so I, I want us to see this. If you, you know, if you were going back, so you, you know, to get the context of Romans chapter 8, you start at the end of 7, and, and Paul says, you know, the, the famous, you know, um, I do the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I do want to do, uh, oh, what a wretch I am, who, who can save me? And then he begins chapter 8 by saying, there is therefore now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He begins chapter 8 by saying there is no condemnation. You know how he ends chapter 8? There's nothing that can separate you from his love. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the other bookend is nothing can separate you from his love. And in the midst of chapter 8, he is going to describe... It, people call, so if, if, um, if Romans, you know, people describe Romans as the Mount Everest of Scripture, Romans chapter 8 is the very high peak of Everest. And in this, he's going to describe our experience in the Christian life, and he's going to say, listen, the Spirit comes, and so we, we don't walk by the flesh, we walk by the Spirit. And then he says in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so the degree to which we suffer, Paul says, is the degree to which we will end up glorifying God. And so Paul, instead of giving us a way out of suffering, you know what he does? He gives us a hope in the midst of suffering. And that something is not wrong with you if you suffer but yet something ends up being gloriously beautiful about you because of suffering. So he's going to say all those things. And then we get to, this is sort of, I would call 828 the, um, uh, the, this sort of final, you know, this is his exclamation point on those that suffer. And what he's talking about is God's sovereignty, his authority and his power over all of suffering. And so look, look at what he says. You know the verse that says this. And we know that those who love God, that for those that love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His, what does it say? His purpose. And when we talk about God's purpose, we enter the realm of God's sovereignty in Scripture. You know... Um, this good, you know, we think, okay, well, what does good mean? Oftentimes when we think of good, we, we think of sort of the good now or the external good or the intrinsic good. But that is not exactly what Paul is referring to. When he's talking about good, he's talking about internal good. He's talking about eternal good. In fact, he's going to say in a moment that this purpose, that the purpose for which he's working all things together is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And so the, the specific good that comes, it'll be seen when we are glorified as we are conformed to the image of Christ. When you talk about image, so image you think of, um, it's used two ways in scripture. It's, both are applicable here. One is you find the image um, that would show up on coins. And, and so the, the image that you would find on a coin is what gave the coin its value. So if, if you were to, you walked out of here, and so say I gave you a bunch of money, and it had my picture on it, you couldn't buy anything with that. You need, a, you know, you need a dead president. You need George Washington or, you know, Ben Franklin. That's the guy you want. You know, it gives value to the coin or to the money. The other way that image is talked about is the image that is reflected, like when you look into a mirror or in the, the case in the ancient world, you would, you would go and 
you know, peer over into a body of water and see your reflection come off of the water. That the good he's talking about here ends up being revealed as we are glorified and are conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now, we're always being conformed. There will just be a day that we will be able to see what that conforming has resulted in. Any, anybody ever been to the Alamo the, um, in the Santa? Okay, Alamo. So here's a little thing, fun thing you can know about me. I, my birthday and the day the Alamo fell are the same day, all right? So different years, but same day, all right? <laughs> and, but if you go up to the Alamo, you, you can go up there, and one of the things that you, so you'll come, you know, you, one of the first things you see is um, near the, the entrance is um, there's a portrait and then the portrait has this um, inscription underneath it, all right? And here's what it says. It says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. And the family has placed it here so that the people may know the appearance of the man who died for their freedom. No picture of James Bonham that exists. But this is his nephew, and he sure looked a lot like him. And if you want to know who to think, it's the guy he resembles. See, there's no literal portrait of Jesus that exists. But the likeness of his son, who makes us free, can be seen in the lives of his true followers. And we glorify God the most when we reflect the image of of his son. Now, this Christ likeness, it's not like, you know, don't, it's not, the goal is not, you know, Wally Cleaver or, you know, Mr. Rogers, much as I love Mr. Rogers, you know, we think, well, that must be what it is. It's just going to go out and, you know, and say, all shucks and all that stuff. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about, listen, when you think about Jesus and the likeness of Jesus, you're talking about radical and fierce love. You're talking about reckless compassion. You are talking about righteous anger. You are talking about a holiness that hates sin. But you are talking about one who forgives sinners and has a passion for God's glory. Following Christ then and following Christ now should be full of risk, full of sacrifice. It is disrupting it is so enticing. And the goal of our life, listen, we just have to hear this this morning, all right? The goal of our life's not comfort. The goal of our life's conforming. The goal of our life's not happiness. The goal of our life's holiness. One writer said, listen, the primary reason for salvation is not to take us somewhere, but to make us like someone. And you can be assured that God will do all to bring us into the likeness of His Son. There's two aspects of God's love. I want you to hear this, and we're going to move on. But it's, listen, one thing is you are fully embraced. You are fully embraced as you are by God. Unconditionally loved and chosen by Him, and that never 
changes no matter what. At the same time, you are always in the process of being transformed. He's, he, he takes you right where you are, and he loves you enough not to leave you there. And when he says all things here, this is the all things are what really make us comfort, uncomfortable. For those who love God, all things work together. See, the challenge to that is we believe that comfort is the more fertile ground to cultivate Christ-likeness. Although we know from experience that's not true, right? I mean, we believe it, though. I mean, we just say, oh, man, if I... I could just get through this thing and get into that thing, then you know what I'd spend? I'd, just, you know, I'd, I'd have better quiet times, and I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd sing with more wholeheartedness at the Christian radio or whatever you, know, whatever you do. That's not true, though. This is the things that absolutely disrupt and threaten our comfort that we find Christ's likeness forged in our life. The, the other thing is we, we believe that favorable circumstances, like a good house and a good job and financial security and obedient children and health and aging, and you know, is more satisfying than being indwelt and transformed into Christ-likeness. That if we're honest, most of us on any given day would opt for favorable circumstances. We just, that's because of the brokenness in us. There's an old seminary professor, uh, Professor Caldwell, E.C. Caldwell. And he was lecturing to his class, and he, you know, he's getting to the end of this lecture, and he says to the students, this is tomorrow, and it's all these seminary students out there. He goes, tomorrow I'll be teaching on Romans 8. So tonight, as you study, pay special attention, he says, to verse 28. Notice what the verse uh, truly says and what it doesn't say. And then he added, and one final word before I dismiss you. Whatever happens in all the years to come, remember, Romans 8, 28 will always hold true. So Professor Caldwell leaves his true story. Professor Caldwell leaves the class after he dismissed it, and he goes to pick up his wife, and then they're going to be, they're headed to a dinner engagement. And he comes across, as they're driving, he comes across um, railroad tracks at the same time that a train does. And his wife is killed instantly, and he is paralyzed permanently. So it is many months until Caldwell finally comes back to the seminary, and he comes back to that class. And yet there's more than that class. The whole place was packed out because they hadn't forgotten. It was not lost on them. The last words that he'd spoken before he left. So he wheels in. Room is packed. He says, gentlemen, this is a time when Seminary was all men, to our shame. Gentlemen, Romans 8.28 still holds true. And one day, 
we shall see God's good even in this. That's what it means to say God is sovereign in power and authority over suffering. But it gets better than that. I want you to see Romans 8, 28. So, and I'll just say this. If you take Romans 8, 28, you've got to take 8, 29 and 8, 30 with it, all right? So that, listen to what these next two verses say. It says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Many people have talked about this throughout the history of the church as the golden chain, or, or maybe it's the, it's the stained glass that reveals in this, um, in this mysterious way the, the beauty of God's power as he brings together in these verses the, what is previous, what is present, and what is future. And notice the emphasis is on God doing everything. And so when we talk about these truths, there's a couple of things to remember. So these are all the words that we don't like to talk about in Christianity, right? Right? foreknowledge and predestination and election's not there, but you're sure Paul tried to sneak it in, right? What in the world is he saying here? So there are a couple of things I would, I would say to you about this. One is that when we talk about these things, this is primarily a discussion that we have amongst believers. The message to unbelievers is always, come, come. Acts 17, uh, for, for, for as, as many as there are have been called to repent. And at the same time, you also find out in Acts 13 that those who were appointed beforehand believed. And you realize, wait a minute, you can't say both of those things. You, you can't say both of those things are true. And, and yet I would, I would tell you this, here's what you see in Scripture. Scripture is absolutely comfortable with two truths that in our finite minds seem to be opposed to each other. And Scripture is absolutely comfortable laying those side by side without any attempt to try to solve the dilemma. It's called an antinomy. It means two things being true at the same time, but we don't know how to put them together. And the Scripture is absolutely unashamed to lay those beside each other. And the degree to which we try to, um, you know, work these out and say, well, well this, you know, this means this, and then this means this, and so they all just mean this. We're doing what Scripture doesn't do. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon one time, he said, well, what do you do with the sovereignty of God and the, and the, and the free will of man? What do you do about those two things? Or he, how, do you, how do you reconcile those two things? Spurgeon, brilliant Spurgeon. You know what he says? He says, I see no need to reconcile friends. That's the way we ought to live about it. So, so as we say this, I would, I would make this final comment, and um, so I'll preview this uh, so that you'll know it's okay to laugh when I say this, all right? So, like, 
I know a joke doesn't work if you say, hey, this is a joke, but first hour, um, so I just, it's a joke, ready? There's only two kinds of people that understand these truths fully. Those that are dead and those that are delusional. Yeah, all right, good. You got, you got it. All right. So, so that's the deal. Um, as, as you talk about, so you, you think about this golden chain, you know, 29 and 30, there's this, I always think of this illustration. So like if you've ever had an English class and in the English class you were doing poetry and one of the things you, your, your teacher, your professor wanted you to do is you, is you take the poem and then you begin to, you know, tear it all apart. And you, you say, well, okay, well, how do these stanzas work? And how do these couplets work? And does it rhyme or does it not rhyme? And how does this image work with this image? And is it balanced? And hard? You know, all of these things. And so, you know, you spend all this time tearing it apart and analyzing. And you just can imagine the poet would break into the room and say, Stop! I never meant for you to do this with the poem. I meant for your heart, your soul. The deepest part of who you are, I meant, I meant to touch that part of you. And so we have to be careful that, that, we, that we don't so analyze these things that we miss the truth. God's sovereignty in Scripture is never presented apart from His love. I want to show you this. When He talks about foreknowledge, I'm just going to tell you, Foreknowledge in the Bible does not mean that God looked down the corridor of time and saw whether you would choose Him or not. Because then you know who's sovereign then? You are. And that is not the sovereignty of God. God does not discover the future. He decrees the future. Okay? Secondly, um, when you talk about predestination... In, I'll just help you here. You don't have to like predestination. I'm not even sure you, you have to think the same way I do about it. But just don't say things like, because we, we want to be, but don't say things like, I don't believe in predestination. Well, you have to believe in something about it, all right? Because it's, it's right here in the middle of Scripture. And it, it means predestined, as Paul uses it, means to mark out beforehand. And it's always unconditional, and it is always initiated by God, and He alone is responsible, and it speaks to the divine, divine purposes of God as it relates to all created things. It means literally to mark off by God's prerogative. And it, but I would just tell you this, if you do not have a high view of God's sovereignty, you will become you will not be able to know comfort. You will find yourself in a place of turmoil and not find yourself able to rest in Him. And I will tell you, Jacob's son Joseph had a high view of the sovereignty of God, which is why he is able to stand in front of the brothers that meant nothing but wickedness towards him and says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
And you know, Joseph points us to the greater Joseph, Jesus, who essentially says the very same thing on the cross. What you mean for evil, God means for good. For the salvation of many. There's a story told of an old group of theologians who were discussing, discussing the, the, the tension between predestination and free will, and it got so heated they broke up into two factions. And there's this one guy left, and he didn't know which side to go to. You know, So he stood there for a moment, tried to decide. He decided, well, I think I'll go to the predestination group. And they said, well, who sent you here? And he said, well, n- nobody sent me here. I came on my own free will. And they cried, free will? You're in the wrong group. You've got to go to the other group. You can't join us. And so he says, okay, okay, okay. So, so he leaves that group, and he goes over to the other group, you know, the free will group, and he, he said, well, when did you decide to join us? He said, well, I, I didn't really decide. I was sent here. Sent here? You can't join us unless you decide you're above your own free will. And that's about how we play things out in the church, and there's no reason. All of this practically means, verse 29, means that God, it reminds us that God is previous. We love Him because He first loved us. His grace comes before our grace. Well, notice what He says again in verse 30. It says, those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I just want you to notice that from the moment you're foreknown to the moment you're glorified, no one is lost. If you're foreknown, you will be glorified. He he sees in us. So when, when, when God sees us, Paul is saying he does not see us without seeing us as we will be. He sees us in our justification clothed with Christ. He sees us in the process of sanctification being conformed to Christ. He sees us in glorification being consumed in and with Christ to His glory. That is how He sees us. And so based on His foreknowledge and predestination, it says that God calls us. What it means is that God is, a, is at work in us before we're aware of it. It means that, in, um, uh, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive with Christ. It means this. It means that the love of God is wooing us. The will of God is drawing us. The desire of God is pursuing us. The gift of God frees us, and the activity of God empowers us. Praise God for His sovereignty. C.S. Lewis sums it up in one brilliant statement in the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia, as Aslan says to the children, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling you. That's what he does. Whatever can be said about this, one thing is clear. The entire initiative of our salvation lies with God. We are justified, means that we stand right before God 
because of the righteousness of Jesus, like Clint talked about this morning. Note, there's no sanctification here. All the theology nerds are like, well, Paul missed sanctification. No. Glorification is sanctification fulfilled. And so he means both of those things. It's the guarantee. It's guaranteed because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what it means. I come across this in my study, and sometimes you stare at a passage, and you're like, and then you read somebody who's been staring at the same passage, and you think, how did they do, how did they do that? Listen to what John Dunn says. Looking at this, he says, I shall be so like God as that the devil himself will not know me from God. He will be able to find no more place to fashion temptation upon me than upon God. And he'll be able to plan no more falling from his kingdom than if he were to be able to drive God out of here. Isn't that great? The enemy won't be able to tell us apart from the sun. God has pursued you from eternity past. Now, let me tell you where this comes extremely practical, and then we're going to wrap up here because you're already ready to get out. Usually by the time Mark's here, I'm just getting warmed up, all right? so. Um, but here's where it becomes extremely practical because some of you in this room, and listen, I'm not, nobody's on my mind. I'm not thinking about anybody. Here's what I know because you're, you're human beings that occupy space on planet Earth. Some of you in this room have been pursued in your life wickedly. You have tasted in your life what you should have never tasted if we lived in a perfect world. And I can't tell you why it happened. I don't know. But as a result of it, some of you, you live with, you live with shame and uncleanness and anger and the results of that kind of stalking and wicked pursuit. Here's the great news. I can tell you this morning, on the basis of this passage and on the basis of passage after passage after passage, that God has also stalked you. That He has pursued you. And He has pursued you for the sole purpose of wrapping His arms around you and saying, I love you. I love you purely. I love you forever. You will never be able to escape the grasp of my perfect love. You know the psalm, right? Psalm 23, where he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow, it's only translated follow that one time in the Old Testament. Every other time, you know how it's translated? Persecute. Surely goodness and mercy will persecute me my entire life. It will hunt me down. It will overwhelm me all the days of my life. And I will rest my weary soul in thee. Well, sovereignty of God in suffering, sovereignty of God in saving us. Very quickly, the sovereignty of God in sustaining us. This is verses 33 or 31 to 39. I'm only going to read the last couple, but let me say this. The first, 31, 32, he does not withhold anything from us. These are evidences that God is completely for us. 31 and 32, he doesn't, uh, hold any, uh, doesn't withhold anything from us. 33 and 34, 
He will not allow anything to condemn us, is what he says. And then the last bit, beginning 35, and I want to read it because it means he will not allow anything to separate us from his love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the whole content of Scripture. Over and over and over again. You can read it in Job. You can read it in Hosea. You can read it in the history books. You can read it in the Psalms. You can read it in the Gospels. God's love demonstrated and poured out in the work of his son, Christ. Story of a girl and her grandfather visits her. She's a little girl. And she's playing with her dolls. And well, which of these dolls do you love the most? He said, you know, which is your favorite? So she brings out this totally ragged doll. I mean, it's missing an eye, it's got torn, it's got stuffing come out of it, it's stained all over, and the grandfather says, well, why is this your favorite doll? And she says, well, if I didn't love this doll, nobody else would. If God didn't love us, no one would love us the way we were designed to be loved. There's a vacuum in our hearts created so strong, the only thing that can is the love of God. Final thoughts. Here's four of them. One, God's love cannot be gauged by what happens to us. The love of God is not gauged by what happens to us. The things that happen to us are not the evidence of God's love for us. You know where the evidence of God's love for us is? It's on the cross. That's the evidence. It's not what happens in your life is what happened to his son. Secondly, God's love cannot be affected by the things that we do. Not obedience, not absolute perfection can increase God's love for you, nor can your disobedience diminish God's love for you. And all that's so unnatural for us, right? Performance is the basis of every relationship we have. Listen, you'll never be loved more actively by anyone more than God. Never more generously, never more unconditionally by anyone other than God. I'll close with this story, and I, and I really am done this time. There was a, a medieval monk. I, I said this in the first hour, and somebody asked me, he's like, um, well, what was the thing about the evil monk? And I was like, oh, I think I said it wrong. 
medieval, middle-aged monk, middle-ages monk, all right? And so he announces to his congregation, next Sunday evening, I'm going to preach a sermon on the love of God. So next Sunday evening comes, the sun goes down, the congregation files into the sanctuary. They don't have, you know, they don't have lights like we have, there's candles. The sun had been coming through the stained glass, but the sun's gone down now, and the congregation found itself sitting in the dark when the old monk came and took his place at the pulpit. And what he does is then, in the midst of the dark, lights a candle. And he walks up to the crucifix, which we don't have those in our churches, but he walked up to the crucifix and he took the candle and he illuminated the crowns of thorns on Jesus' head. And then takes the candle and illuminates the, the wounds created by the nails driven into his hands. And then he takes the candle and illuminates the place where the spear entered his side. And then he takes the candle and blows it out. Steps away from the pulpit and the congregation continues. You want to know the love of God? Not what happens in your life. What happened to his son. By the sovereign decree of a God who is all-powerful and has all authority. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.